It'll take a few seconds. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this second meeting um, of our Oxford um, uh, South Asia, Modern South Asia seminars. Um, today, again, taking advantage of the, the willingness of people, fellow scholars across the world to give us talks, which is a, a silver lining in the cloud of the pandemic. Um, we extend a very warm welcome to Professor Dilip Menon. Um, Dilip is Mellon Professor of Indian Studies um, and Director of the Centre of Indian Studies in Africa at the University of Witwatersrand. Now, Dilip and, I, Dilip and I, I hope Dilip won't mind my saying this, go back a very long way together. Um, uh, uh, Dilip was uh, really one of the very first pioneers with his cultural history uh, in the field of in the field of, of, of um, subaltern studies considered in its broad cultural broadest cultural dimensions um, and with his his um, path-breaking book caste nationalism uh, and communism in south india published in 1994 um, dilip's um, uh, perspectives on caste, um, on caste identity, on Dalit identity, um, on untouchability in the colonial era were really tremendously important um, in showing us what could be done um, uh, uh, with a, when a historian uh, was willing to look at all kinds of unusual sources um, such as oral histories, um, uh, ballads, um, uh, and and what had hitherto been considered the ephemera um, of colonial uh, social history. Since then, um, Dilip has, has uh, continued to work on caste, um, continued to work on uh, issues of socialism and equality um, in modern India, um, and has a whole wealth, not just of scholarly essays, but also of broader essays addressing important questions of cultural history, literature, theatre, and so on. And it's it's very um, uh, uh, engaging and impressive to see now the turn that Dilip's work has taken towards the global. Um, uh, this is um, in his uh, um, most recent Capitalism's A Global History, um, an edited volume with Oxford University Press that came out in February this year and where it really does a long overdue job um, in exploring the diversity of capitalisms um, across across the globe and across centuries and even millennia um, uh, to, to lay bare really uh, the differences that are all too often subsumed under some uh, monolithic notion that capitalism is um, uh, takes only one particular form. Um, and we, what we have to look forward to, I believe next year, is another work of global history, another um, volume bringing together foremost scholars in the field, Concepts from the Global South, uh, due out, which is due out with Routledge, in which Dilip and his colleagues um, and I have to say I haven't read this, but I look forward to it very keenly. Dilip and his colleagues really draw out uh, the nuances of a whole range of um, uh, 
culturally critical words um, in languages from across the global south. Um, uh, and that very careful focus on terms, on their nuances, on their changing forms over time, their cultural ramifications, um, I think we can anticipate an absolute feast and a real expansion of our understanding of the interface um, between politics, language uh, and culture. Now, today, um, appropriately, and we're most grateful for, uh, to Dilip for, for answering our, our call that he be available to talk to us. Today, most appropriately, we are going to hear about another pandemic. Um, Dilip's title for today is Pandemic as Event, Thinking Modern Indian Society Through a Crisis. Dilip, please let me hand over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Polly, and thank you, Imra. Thank you for inviting me uh, to old haunting grounds, even though as a virtual presence. And one of the advantages of knowing the person chairing the session for a very long time is that they have extremely flattering things to say about you. They're not bemused by your presence on the screen. Uh, so what I'm going to do today is actually not uh, based so much on my work as a historian, but on my uh, work as an inhabitant of the universe in a time of crisis. Because one of the things I think all of us have been doing, besides doom scrolling, that is, is to uh, try and be aware of what this pandemic is doing in terms of revealing uh, to us uh, the structures of society, revealing to us certain existing prejudices, certain political fault lines and so on, and also requiring us to think about our task as historians writing from a movement which I suppose is unparalleled in our lifetimes. Uh, none of us uh, has experienced a lockdown before where we were uh, forcibly confined to our homes uh, in a form of house arrest, uh, though that would be putting too much weight on something that uh, didn't demand too much political dissidence from us. But this whole idea of being in the world as the entire world has become knit together by a common experience of lockdown is something that uh, tells us that it's not possible anymore to study uh, the world from our respective wanted standpoints, whether we come from a particular village, a particular caste, a particular nation, but to think more globally about what unites us as human beings. And certainly this follows clues on the heels of the larger theoretical movement that is happening, where we are beginning to look at the Anthropocene, we are beginning to look at human-animal relations, we are beginning to think about global warming, multiple uh, conjunctures in which humanity is right now, of which COVID is yet another phenomenon. So one of the things that uh, I think I want to begin with is the fact that conjunctures like these uh, reveal to us the uh, functioning of society or the dysfunctional nature of societies, showing us hierarchy, showing us inequality, showing us the inability of uh, governments and uh, civil society to come to terms with certain forms of disorganization that have set in. And, it's, uh, and I'm reminded in many senses of a moment very early on in my youth when uh, some of you may remember the first volume of Subaltern Studies came out in 1982 and uh, I'm of that generation which was hugely influenced and decided not to do the national pastime of writing the civil service examination, decided to do history, much to the misfortune of the discipline. 
the when subordinate studies came out, and then in 1984, two years after the first volume, you had the assassination of Mrs. Indira Gandhi, which was followed by the large-scale massacres of Sikhs, uh, which at that time startled the Indian conscience. Unfortunately, this has become a feature. Uh, earlier this year, we saw the pogroms in Delhi carried out against Muslims by the Bharatiya Janata Party. But to go back to 1984, when this happened, it became evident that much of the exaltation of the spontaneous uprisings of the masses needed to be understood with a clearer eye. And it was Professor Sumit Sarkar who uh, spoke to us in Delhi at that point and said, how do we exactly understand subaltern agency when it comes to us in a hugely complicated way such as this, where we are thinking about rivalries of class, caste, political uh, contingencies, ethnicity, and so on and so forth. So similarly, when we think about this conjuncture of COVID, we need to be aware of the forms of agency that are being accelerated, are being accentuated, and we need to think about these. And uh, if one thinks about the, uh, the theoretical uh, intervention by the Anal School, where, as all of you may be familiar, there was a distinction made between heuristically three kinds of time, the time of the long durée, uh, geological time, uh, the uh, you know, questions of climate, a whole set of uh, um, historical uh, circumstances which needed to be explained in terms of millennia. You also had the history of events which were shorter, but which, so something like the French Revolution, which did mark a distinct conjuncture, I mean, or distinct break from a certain past. And you also had these uh, conjunctures within which uh, certain uh, fault lines within society were revealed. So between the long durée, the history of events and the conjunctures, the conjuncture comes to us as a revelatory moment in many senses. And we can think about many such in Indian history. Certainly the 1984 uh, massacre of Sikhs was one such departure where a certain idea of India came into question and the killing of minorities surfaced, many memories of the partition surfaced in 1984. People started speaking about the in, uh, inversion of 1948 and 1984, for example. And we have uh, in 1992, the Babri Masjid uh, event, which, uh, you know, the destruction of the Babri Masjid by Hindu fundamentalists, which again, called into question a whole paradigm. But what is interesting about this point is that about the uh, onset of COVID is that people are suddenly looking back a uh, hundred years to the 1918 and the Spanish flu. And this is something that uh, was an event that had been more or less forgotten, right? I mean, not many people remembered the Spanish flu except people who had been alive at that time, perhaps. I mean, I doubt whether such uh, ancient individuals exist, but the Spanish flu became the kind of resonant moment, the moment that twinned with our uh, present. And if one looks back to the work that was done on the Spanish flu, one realizes that the onset of the Spanish flu was global. It followed a certain crisis, the First World War, but it also sparked off particular crises within empires. So the British Empire, for instance, uh, in India, uh, you know, several, you know, tens of millions of people died. And it was interesting how the colonial government had been less than interventionist in the 1918 Spanish flu, whether it was the fatigue of war, 
whether it was the fact that uh, the British government in India had burnt its hands during the 1896 cholera epidemic, where it had adopted an extremely interventionist approach, which was seen by many native elites as uh, kind of being an attack on Indian society and its cultural norms, led to the first political assassination in India of W.G. Rand, the plague commissioner in Pune by two Brahmin youths who felt that Indian culture was under threat. But this conjuncture of COVID brought back many of those memories, brought back the idea of a period when the state kind of abandoned its role, as it were, in 1918. The scale of deaths is very high. Certainly, we are nowhere close to that number. But we are talking about a fraying that is happening of society. And uh, the, in David Arnold's wonderful essay, he speaks about very, very poignant instances like the uh, famous poet Surya Kantripati Nirala writing about how almost his entire family was decimated, looking at the river Ganges and seeing it flowing with bodies because bodies could not be cremated. People were scared about handling bodies uh, uh, which were afflicted with the flu. Uh, uh, are the famous uh, uh, tiger hunter and conservationist Jim Corbett spoke about how um, man-eating became a phenomenon in the foothills of the Himalayas as bodies were abandoned and tigers developed a taste for human flesh and so on and so forth. So in one sense, what these events, whether it's 1918 or this pandemic, do for us is to move us away uh, from the idea of a homogeneous empty time. This is, as you know, a phrase, a very resonant, plungent phrase from Walter Benjamin's essay on the philosophy of history. And his idea that historians should be critiquing this idea of homogeneous empty time, that indeed history is about the flash that connects us to the past, that we in our present moment look back from a moment of danger to a moment in the past in order to see what that moment reveals to us. And in, in one sense, that is exactly what is happening right now in the middle of the pandemic, that this conjuncture has summoned up historical memories, that there are ways in which we are thinking about these global connections afresh, there have been a, uh, wonderful essays on, for example, uh, uh, the Treaty of Versailles, for example, uh, Treaty of Versailles, which uh, the harsh uh, terms of which many have argued have led to the rise of Nazism in Germany. And of course, there's this wonderful essay which speaks about how Woodrow Wilson was suffering from the Spanish flu. Enfeebled by it, he couldn't withstand the manly Georges Clemenceau, who was insisting that harsh terms be uh, levied against the, uh, France's rival Germany and that Woodrow Wilson caved in. And so in that sense, the Spanish flu was responsible for the rise of Nazism, Hitler and so on. So you find a lot of these historical arguments that are circulating, which are concerned with the rupture of homogeneous empty time. They're reaching back to moments in the past to try and understand the, these conjunctures that we are living in. So if you are to think about India in particular, right? one of the things that is very clear is that we are at a moment where we have to think globally. So regardless whether, whether we're thinking about Bolsonaro, we're thinking about Putin, we're thinking about uh, Trump, we're thinking about Erdogan, or we're thinking about Narendra Modi, we are thinking about forms of authoritarian populism, which have uh, emerged as a kind of threat 
to the forms of democracy that had been set in place uh, from uh, in the post-Second World War era. And what we have now is a kind of toxic mix of a performative populism, by which I mean that governments are less about pastoral forms of care. Uh, you know, when we think about the welfare state, we think about uh, social security, we think about uh, medical insurance, we, you know, we think about the fraying of the NHS in Britain, we think about the fraying of the entire public health system in China, we think about the attack on Obamacare in the United States, where this performative populism is about the presentation of the leader as the person who exemplifies uh, a popular will. And uh, there has been also a huge deployment of social media. Social media determines what we know. And the idea of uh, you know, the, uh, uh, that we live in a world of invented facts, that we live with half-truths around us, that very often what triggers political and social action and indeed civil society is based on a mixture of fact and fiction. And increasingly, the third features that we've seen attacks against earlier paradigms. So whether it is notions of secularism, of uh, liberal societies, which are multicultural and accepting of racial and religious differences. In India, we've seen the attack on Nehruvianism, on liberal democracy, on uh, certainly on secularism, forms of social egalitarianism. But when we look at all of this, there is a way in which we have to think beyond the moment and certainly something like the pandemic has required us to ask, is this something that is astonishingly new, right? Is this something that is, uh, the, uh, has become evident and has surfaced in the last two, three years? And in, if we look at Indian history and we think about the ways in which Narendra Modi has presented himself in many senses as a monarch, right? also as a very zealig-like character where he has inserted himself into every previous moment in Indian history so that the RSS uh, has, is seen as playing a role in the independence movement, which it did not. Uh, Narendra Modi has uh, shown himself sitting at the Charkha very much like uh, Mahatma Gandhi and spinning at uh, the kind of speed uh, that uh, Henry Ford would have uh, appreciated. The Charkha, as you know, is a slow reflective kind of weaving. So this Zelig-like insertion into history, which also is about effacing forms of history, where history is himself. All of these, so one begins to ask, is this something that is tremendously new? And thinking back to the lineages of this authoritarian populism, one can perhaps go back to the forms of mobilization, Gandhian mobilization, uh, which were a politics of exemplarity, uh, because Gandhi also embodied an authoritarian populism of a certain kind, where it was uh, Gandhi versus, he became the sole spokesperson of Indian nationalism. And if you think about the writing of Indian nationalism or writing of nationalist history post-independence, what we had was Gandhi at the peak and a whole lot of people who fell by the wayside, like Ambedkar, Bose, M. N. Roy, and so on and so forth, people who contended against that uh, Gandhian vision, where Gandhi embodied the people, right? He was Christ-like on the cross. He died for the sins of India, so to speak. And so that kind of authoritarian populism, which then gains a successor in Nehru, 
And I have written about this recently in an article on the emergency where I look at uh, the foremost uh, satirical journal of independent India founded in 1949, Shankar's Weekly, where every page had Nehru writ large over it. So at the same time as Nehru was made the object of satire, gentle satire, no doubt, he also came to stand in for India. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, Nehru tells Shankar, uh, don't spare me, Shankar, he says. So Shankar is satirical under the direction of the authoritarian populace, so to speak. So particularly the spirit of COVID and the kind of tightening of certain forms of control and certain forms of irresponsibility by the state leads us to think back about the genealogy. Right? This is not to say that we need to work with a teleology, that there, were, there is an, a line that leads us from Gandhi to Modi, but it also needs us to be more um, thoughtful about the present, think about the lineages of the present, think about the kind of forms of political society, political visions that existed in the past, which have possibly created and colored the uh, forms of politics we have now. The Economist, uh, which I never thought I would be quoting at any point in my life, approvingly or otherwise, has this wonderful phrase called pan-democracy or democracy in the time of pandemics. And what, it, what this phrase captures for us is that Regardless of where we look right now, whether it's India, Brazil, US, etc., uh, that democracy has begun to function in particular forms, uh, embodying authoritarian, uh, embodying an authoritarian streak, where the stifling of dissent, the stifling of any kind of difference from the attempts to make a national paradigm are treated with uh, violence. So you see this happening in the US where a large number of Trump supporters have given up the mask, are questioning the very foundations of racial uh, equality as much as common sense in terms of occupying public space. In India, we've seen the stifling of dissent because just prior to uh, the onset of COVID, we had that huge explosion of uh, civil dissent. You know, we had uh, the against the Citizenship Amendment Act. You had the emergence of Shaheen Bagh in Delhi, where large numbers of women spoke, began to speak for democracy. And then Shaheen Bagh was replicated all over India. Very recently, the Supreme Court has passed a judgment saying that a phenomenon like Shaheen Bagh has to be governed by a notion of time, that it cannot continue, that this cannot be a protest without end that protests have to be temporarily bound. Now, needless to add, the circumstances that necessitated the creation of a Shaheen Bagh haven't vanished, right? So questions of who is a citizen of India are still paramount. The questions of who is not a citizen are being enacted in front of our eyes. And so what you see in this period of pan-democracy is one, the stifling of dissent. There is a way in which the earlier upsurge of activity has more or less come to an end, largely because of social distancing, lockdown, and so on and so forth. But there is an ongoing attack on one, intellectual bastions like Jawaharlal Nehru University. There is also the use of the, uh, ironically, the, a law introduced by the previous government, the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, 
and uh, COVID has become the time to round up dissent. So we have seen over a period of time the arrest of uh, you know, eminent poets and activists like Varavara Rao. We have seen the former editor of EPW, Gautam Nawlakha, has been arrested. The uh, Dalit uh, intellectual and uh, thinker Anand Tilthumde is in jail. Saji and Sai Baba who was a lecturer at Delhi University, Hani Baba, you could go on. I mean, a lot of you are familiar if you've been reading the newspapers about how dissent is being slowly curtailed under cover of lockdown. And we're also seeing the creation of a new archive. And this is something that is possibly can and can be called an archive of absurdity. Because if you think about the case that was filed against the Citizenship Amendment Act, the activists opposing the Citizenship Amendment Act, it was 17,500 pages of documents uh, which took on the pogrom that happened earlier this year against Muslims in Delhi. And it was only those who were protesting against the Citizenship Amendment Act who been named this, not those who called for violence against Muslims and so on. In another absurd archive, you have Umar Khalid, the uh, student leader from JNU, who, who was asked to read 1.1 million pages of documents in a week in order to defend himself. So the pan-democracy has created a form of excess, right? an excess of documentation, an excess of documentation which records every form of political expression as dissent. So you have, there is no gradation as to the difference between Varavara Rao and Umar Khalid, right? There is a, a kind of uh, landscape that has been created where uh, if anyone appearing to stand against the government can be subjected to the most extreme forms of suppression and the creation of this archive of documents that then can be used to bang them on the head with. And uh, those of you, again, have been who have been following the news know that at the heart of this, at the heart of this is the violence that happened in 2018 at Bhima Kurigao, where, uh, uh, where large numbers of Dalits gathered to celebrate a former victory in the colonial period and uh, you know, against the uh, Marathas, and there was a huge attack on them. Large numbers of Dalits were killed. The violence was seen as being orchestrated by these very figures who are now being arrested. So Bhima Kuregao has become a kind of catch-all phrase for, to arrest and to suppress dissent. And we have an increasing form of surveillance that is coming into operation. Those of you who are familiar again, and I've been following the news, know that the government wished to introduce something called the Arogya app, which is a health app, which would be on your phone. But what it basically meant that it would track your movement, you know, wherever you were, whatever you were doing. Large numbers of people, of course, raised the issue of privacy as they did earlier with the Aadhaar. Uh, but the Arogya app uh, was again, came to be at the heart of this idea of a, a kind of again, to borrow a phrase from uh, The Economist, of the coronopticon, right? That in the time of corona, corona, there's a kind of panopticon that the government has tried to create, which tries to uh, enact a form of surveillance against every citizen. So what is happening to democracy at this point is that democracy is not built, is not 
premised anymore on the idea of civil society and dissent. It is based on this performative authoritarian populism. It is also based on a sidelining of parliament. All of this becomes possible because of lockdown right? and because of the ability of the government in the interests of a larger interest of health and of uh, fear of contagion and so on to contain the numbers of people on the street, contain protest on the street, so that when you have the recent passing of the Farm Act, which basically removes the minimum support price for farmers, grants huge authority to corporates to not only determine the trajectory of agricultural production, but also to gain control over the little farms that exist and on farmers' decisions. The Farm Act was passed in a matter of few days without any discussion whatsoever. So we have to think about COVID, authoritarian populism, pan-democracy. The other question that we need to think about, which is very crucial, is the fact that if India is largely, and increasingly it, it is becoming evident, it's a hierarchical, inegalitarian and violent society, which imagines itself through who it inflicts violence on. So we have had the lynchings of Muslims, you've had the killings of Dalits, uh, the recent Hathras case uh, throws the rule of law to the winds. We've had the uh, body of a young girl who was raped, burnt by the police, even before any form of uh, investigation could be uh, uh, launched. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm just getting various things popping up on my screen. Yes, here, here we're back again. So the question here is that this whole idea of who belongs to the nation was raised first by the Citizenship Amendment Act, right, by the government saying that those uh, who came from outside India, particularly countries like Bangladesh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, could not be deemed to be citizens of India. And very clear, this was a kind of dog whistle to the Hindu constituency about keeping out the Muslims. But it's also clear that it's not only those who come from outside, but those who live within who are being marginalized. And we are seeing increasingly under COVID forms of violence that are increasing rule of law that is being abandoned and the number of cases of attacks on Dalits and Muslims has actually spiked in this period. And uh, the recent statistics as to the numbers of Dalits and Muslims in prison are alarming because they're hugely disproportionate to their actual numbers in the population. Now into this uh, kind of uh, field where if the Citizenship Amendment Act was about defining who did not belong in terms of the insider and the outsider, the whole issue of the Dalit and Muslim within the country has become that of the insider-outsider, right? Somebody who is within society, but who is permanently on the margin of society. And if one thinks about the kind of work that Anand Tel Tumde had been uh, has been uh, writing since uh, his book on the Kerlanji murders, for example, India's hidden apartheid, as he calls it, and the fact that there's been this consistent low-grade fever since 1947 of the impunity with which uh, Dalits have been killed, Dalit villages have been torched, Dalit women have been raped, all of these are in some sense acquiring more and more frequency and increasingly also acquiring more and more prominence 
So that there is a whole generation under COVID who's also waking up to this. Now, it's not as if this did not exist. You know, when you think about the Kilvin Money massacre, massacre of 1968, we are actually thinking about 41 Dalits burnt alive you know, in their village. But there, were, there was a way in which all of this was kept under the radar in secular India, where religious violence was seen as more important than violence against Dalits. But under COVID, I think not only are the incidents of violence growing, the perception of violence is growing as well. And this is an important uh, fact that we need to take into account that the recent High Court, Allahabad High Court judgment, we tend to assume that the state of Uttar Pradesh is beyond redemption, uh, controlled entirely by the Chief Minister Ajay Bisht, uh, who calls himself uh, uh, Swami something or the other, I forget his name. Uh, so Ajay Bisht, uh, has unleashed a reign of terror, but the Allahabad High Court has said that the actions of the police in burning the rape victim were illegal. Right now, so you find this counterbalance that is slowly emerging as the courts are beginning to step in, and that balance of power that we speak about is required, has been required to become more active. A public conscience has been aroused, and so. This conjuncture is something that sees both the uh, kind of exacerbation of state authoritarianism, but is also seeing a rising swell of public dissent. And of this, I'm very hopeful, though we have to see where this will go, because as of now, there isn't a significant opposition to the Prime Minister Modi. So this question of the untouchable, the question of the Dalit, the question of the Dalit at the heart of India is something that has increasingly begun to surface. And here again, if one thinks about what is happening uh, in the United States, it's interesting in the other democracy. You know, we call ourselves the world's most populous democracy. America calls itself the world's oldest democracy and so on and so forth. There are various ways in which uh, countries which are governed by authoritarian populists claim the uh, title of uh, Democrats and of democracy. The killing of Floyd uh, George earlier this year uh, rejuvenated the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think there is, uh, there is a significant reason for this because his last words, like that of many other black men killed at the hands of policemen in the United States, his last words were, uh, uh, I could not, I cannot breathe, right? And this struck a chord uh, with a kind of illness, right? the kind of disease that uh, the coronavirus has inflicted on humanity, where it attacks a respiratory system. So this became a metaphor almost, as I cannot breathe is the condition of human civilization right now. And George Floyd's last words touched a chord somewhere. And some of you may know of this wonderful uh, uh, orchestra uh, composition, choral composition by Joel Thompson called The Seven Last Words of the Unarmed, which was composed in 2014, where he looks at that whole string, the recent string of young black men who have been killed from Trayvon Martin through to uh, Floyd George, who all, as the police knelt on their necks and, uh, forced them down, prevented them from breathing, squeezed the life out of them. Their last words were that they could not breathe. And he incorporates this into a, a composition which when it was first performed in 2014, 
uh, audiences walked out, tore up the performance notes and so on. But this year has gained a certain kind of valence. And why I bring this up is the kind of resonance between the killings of Dalits and a growing swell of protest against that in India and the killing of blacks, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement around five years ago, and, and it's surfacing again, gaining a certain powerful traction as a result of the very fact of I cannot breathe being our condition right now. It speaks to us. It speaks to every human being on the planet. And regardless of the fact that the uh, seven last words of the unarmed uh, actually worked on the liturgical structure of hate and seven last uh, words of Christ, uh, that it's kind of an abstruse reference right, to a certain classical canon. The words of the chorus have implanted themselves in a consciousness that speaks to the zero degree, in some sense, of subalternity of certain individuals, that some people are considered more human than the others. So this is something that we need to think about. So even as we think about the continuing violence in India, the growth of uh, you know, pan-democracy, coronopticon, the increasing uh, suppression of dissent, the exacerbation of forms of structural violence in India, we're also seeing a kind of engagement with this, which hopefully will result in newer forms of politics at the end of this. Now, this may be because uh, somebody said I, I appear to be on Prozac when I said this to them, but, but I remain eternally optimistic about the possibilities of Indian democracy. The two other aspects that I would like to speak about before I end, uh, I don't want to speak for too long, uh, because as most of you may have experienced this, alongside the coronavirus is the virus of webinars. You know, there are webinars galore right now, and you, know, you are waylaid at every step at every second of the day by the possibility of somebody wanting to uh, give you information on everything under the sun. So if you think about the image that stays with us from the time of COVID in India, what has become evident really is the fact of the hugely hierarchical nature of Indian society, as I said, where some are more human than the others. And what we saw was the, with the declaration of lockdown, the huge abandonment of labor. That large numbers of workers, migrant workers, began these incredible journeys, the ill, the ailing, the young, traveling a hundred thousand kilometers, walking on foot, using bicycles, walking along rail tracks, which led to one of the disasters of people, sleeping migrants being mowed down by a train, that what we have seen is it's become evident to us, palpably evident, that those who were on the fringes of our imagination, right? for most uh, Indian citizens, the pre prevalence of small and medium uh, enterprises, the phenomenon of uh, unpaid labor, sweatshops, etc., remains at the margins of their consciousness. But here, it came to be at the center of what we saw of ourselves as a nation and of ourselves as citizens, and the fact that some citizens could merely be abandoned, right, and that. They, in fact, it could be well asked whether being born in a country grants you citizenship. 
And what was interesting at the same time as the sense of shock that was repeated in page after page of newspapers and journal articles in visual images, in cartoons, those of you been following the media, you know, uh, this, this is a period that yields a rich haul of outrage, so to speak, against the heartlessness at the heart of uh, Indian society. But alongside this was a certain kind of post-colonial sentimentality as well. If you think about uh, India post-1947 and the slogans, the populist slogans of Indira Gandhi, of Garibi Hatao, India li uh, lives in its villages, the nobility of the poor, which then became uh, the uh, kind of a trope, major trope in Bollywood cinema, a lot of that continued to persist, where the idea of this abandonment of labor went alongside the idea that, ah, here are our wretched huddled masses and they are being massacred yet again. But there was very little intervention that uh, could happen, very little intervention that was initiated in order to actually handle this. And those of you who saw those panicky scenes of at bus stations across India as migrants tried to get on, it again brought back memories like in 1984 of the partition of uh, the sheer rush of people abandoned by a state, the sheer rush of people uh, who, I mean, abandonment probably presumes that the state actually cared for them, right? So we are actually talking about a situation where it became evident that the, they existed in as much as they were fodder to a larger enterprise of labor and of the relations, the very close relations between state and capital in India. And following on from this, and this is a question that we all have to ask as to what will follow as India enters one of its worst economic phases, uh, one of the things that's doing the rounds on social media is how even Bangladesh and Pakistan have got ahead of us and the Hindu nationalists are hugely irked by this fact that the projections for, our, you know, for the growth of GDP are very low. So what is going to happen to India after lockdown? And signs of this are becoming evident again in that one state, the lawless state of Uttar Pradesh, where uh, over 30 of the 35 labor law legislation laws have been removed from the books. So when people, when labor starts returning, it will be faced with a draconian authoritarian regime within which hours of work, conditions of work, pay, all of which will be decided by that huge leviathan of state and capital. And the question of the abandonment of labor in after, during lockdown will be replaced by a complete coercion and control of labor in the uh, months to come, in the years to come. And this is again something that we need to be thinking about seriously. There hasn't been sufficient awareness, sufficient writing about it. What If you follow the newspapers, you begin to see how state and capital are working together in order to create the new regime of productivity that will emerge. And this is a phenomenon we've seen before, right? If you think about the 2008 financial recession, again, state the state comes to the rescue of capital, right? Here again, you uh, find the state coming to the rescue of capital. And so what we have to think about is this whole question that is central to our understanding of Indian democracy. You've spoken about pan-democracy, you've spoken about authoritarian populism, 
You've to, talked about the forms of heartlessness and abandonment of significant sections of India's working population. That the, if it is, if we are to speak about democracy, not only as founded procedurally on the holding of elections and so on and so forth, the existence of balance of powers, the existence of a constitution, if you are to think about the spirit of democracy, and we go back to that triad of the French Revolution of equality, liberty, and fraternity, what is increasingly becoming evident is that while equality exists in the constitution and is legislated, liberty exists, but is being slowly whittled away by the government's draconian policies on dissent, fraternity has never existed. Right? In a caste society such as ours, the very fact that at the height of COVID, the people who were targets of attack and if you've been reading the newspaper, the people who were targets of attack were people like delivery boys, people who were gathering garbage, people who were nurses working in medical establishments, all of those who were dealing with were either labor who, or who were dealing with dirt and disease were marginalized, right? were marginalized in fundamental ways so that there were attacks on nurses who came from the Northeast, attacks on nurses who came from Southern India and were dark skinned in Northern India. This question of the absence of fraternity among Indians. So when we say Indians, it's a merely sentimental category. We're not united by any fellow feeling. And this question that Ambedkar left for us of the resolution of Maitri, right? resolution of fellowship, of fraternity, of friendship, that could that needed to undergird democracy. But as he said, what we have is a democracy on a fundamentally undemocratic soil, and all of that is becoming very evident right now. So the question that we have to ask ourselves again is how are we to rebuild or build fraternity in a society that is nakedly riven now by these kinds of differences between human beings who will live and who will not live. It is not the sovereign who decides who will live. It is a societal consciousness that determines who is worthy of life and who isn't. And this is something that has been revealed to us in its starkest way in India right now. And what we have to ask, whether it is whether we are thinking about caste in India, whether we are thinking about that racial democracy called the United States, or we are thinking about a Europe increasingly defining itself in Christian ways as against Islam and with the huge up, uh, incoming of migrants from 2016 onwards, the very identity, the unthought identity of Europe as a Christian Europe, it always presented itself as secular, multicultural and so on. What democracies will have to face across the board after COVID is the question of fraternity in democracies. So I think I will stop here. And for those of you who want to uh, think about some of these issues, uh, in terms of uh, particular conjunctures of the, you know, so for example, uh, the publication of Isabel Wilkerson's book on caste, right, which attempts to create a connection between caste and race, and to argue from the experiential, that the experience of the Dalit is similar to the experience of the African-American in the United States. And in this, she's not new. 
in positing this, she follows a huge line from W. B. Du Bois onwards, to be a Negro is to ride a Jim Crow in Georgia, that statement that raises a visceral experiential quality. And if one looks at all the reviews that appeared, which were fairly academic, written by largely upper caste and white academics, uh, which argued that, well, you know, this is really academically slippery. How do you make an equation between caste and race? Is that fundamentally different and so on? But at the heart of that book was something that I was pointing to. Floyd George saying, I cannot breathe, which speaks to all of us as humans. The other thing is that for those of us who have been stuck at home watching Netflix, uh, I wouldn't really put, I mean, that sounds like despair. I think most of us are enjoying being stuck at home watching uh, uh, Netflix. You've seen a whole number in uh, of uh, serials and films that have been coming out, including Patal Lok, Mirzapur, and so on, which take up this issue of caste, take up this issue of the migrant, take up this issue of the deep divisions within Indian society, but interestingly enough, we are still stuck with the paradigm of that post-colonial sentimentality, which banishes the idea of caste to the village, as with Sham Benegal's films. Now it's the rise of the small town. So the Anurag Kashyap School of Filmmaking is now seeped into the kinds of films that are coming out in Netflix, where caste is not something that constitutes the upper caste secular imagination, it's something that comes from the small town. So we've moved away from the village. The village has receded from our imagination. It's a small town that has emerged with IPL and other phenomena, right? Uh, which again, cricket is a major part of Indian consciousness almost as much as caste is. Where the idea of uh, the hierarchies that govern Indian society were first located in the village and now located in the small town. And for those of you who saw Indian matchmaking, which again came out on Netflix about which there was huge discussion in India, it exemplified what Ambedkar called the deep biological trench that runs through Indian society, where Indians are divided from one another by caste, will not marry, we are, we are endogamous, which takes us back to the question of the possibility of Maitri and fraternity. Has COVID exacerbated the demise of fraternity has COVID allowed us to think about newer forms of fraternity. Only time will tell, and I'll stop here. Thank you. Well, uh, Dilip, thank you so much for an absolutely wonderful um, talk um, uh, and for finishing, for giving us um, uh, uh, a, a great overview that connects history with the present, um, that connects caste with class, with race, that connects the various profound challenges to democracy that we have all experienced, particularly since um, the financial crisis and more particularly since the arrival of COVID. Um, and thank you very much indeed for finishing with um, some very thought-provoking uh, and useful questions um, as, as we move on. Um, for next week, um, can I announce um, that on Tuesday the 27th of October, we have joining us in Oxford, Philip Lutkendorf from the University of Iowa. Uh, and the title of Philip's talk is Chai, why? The making of the Indian national drink. 
please, those of you who are interested in joining for this talk, would you register for a ticket via Eventbrite um, in the way that you did uh, in order to join with this talk? So we will all uh, thank you very much indeed um, and uh, look forward to future discussions. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Dilip. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye.